ready? Hey, everybody. Yeah, how's the sound? Is that good? You don't know who... Yeah, it, it did sound fine. Okay. You don't know who's with me this week. Paul Provenza's with me this week. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I love what you're doing here. Thank you. Thank really you. love it. I appreciate it. Um, you picked an album I haven't heard of before, which people have heard me say this all the time, but I'm excited every time somebody gives me something new. <laughs> good. Um, but Robert Klein's Mind Over Matter. Yes, sir. And so, why? first of all, why'd you pick it? Well... To start with, and this is really the bigger the bigger point here, mm. is just that Robert Klein is one of the, I wouldn't say unsung, that's not true. I mean, I think he's very highly respected sure. and appreciated to a significant degree, mm-hmm. but not to the degree to which he deserves. Yeah. Robert Klein is perhaps one of the more profound influences on certainly my generation of stand-up comedian, yeah. uh, and at least uh, one or two that followed. Uh, but speaking from my generation, uh, I got to tell you, man, so many people starting out were doing Robert Klein. They were doing Robert Klein. And uh, he just, he meant a lot to an entire generation because he was perhaps, along with people like David Steinberg Mm -hmm. and a handful of others who had emerged at that time, but particularly Robert Klein was doing a college-educated young man's perspective. Yeah. And that's really the first time, and he wore it on his sleeve. You know, mm-hmm. his whole his whole thing was that, uh, you know, he was countercultural in that he was the next generation. Yeah. In a slightly different way from the way George Carlin was countercultural, which was on its face. Mm-hmm. But Klein was just basically saying, in, in, in his demeanor, in his way of being, in his approach as a college-educated young uh, Jewish guy, which yeah. I'll come back to in a second because that does figure in. Mm-hmm. But he was saying that, you know, we've moved on. Yeah. And his style of comedy was was not designed to be necessarily crowd-pleasing to everybody. Right. He specifically was choosing to talk to a particular audience that, that got what he was, was saying and, mm-hmm. and, and didn't really... You know, he didn't come from that that older school perspective of you got to appeal to everybody, you got to appeal to grandparents, you got to appeal to kids, you got to appeal to everybody, and um, he really was the first voice of that next generation of uh, immigrant offspring. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he was the you know the kid who's who's parents were immigrants Mm -hmm. grew up in the bronx and made good right fulfilled his parents dreams Mm -hmm. and that was the perspective from which he was speaking uh and i mentioned jewish before because it did inform uh a lot of comedy at the time because traditionally prior to people like robert klein and david steinberg and and some others uh you had the jewish immigrant experience in comedy yeah and this was the first voice that was that that's over there's yeah. something new now there's a, there's a different kind of identity yeah. for a, a young jewish guy right. in america yeah. uh, so all those things operated on a very very subtle you know, in very very subtle ways to really define him as somebody different and really really important and i feel like he never really is appreciated the way George Carlin is appreciated or Richard Pryor is right. appreciated. I think his work is hilarious. Sure. I think it was insightful. But most importantly, he was so influential in such profound ways that a lot of comics have forgotten how influential he was right. upon them. Yeah. 
you yeah. know no that makes perfect sense I yeah mean, it's the the interesting thing though is is when somebody like him spawns a new generation of comics that are it, it's good if it's obviously so different but the type of stand-up that i grew up watching was brick wall stand-up which you know a lot of guys you know of of your generation that's yeah, you started out doing. That's how we became exposed. Right. We were just we were right in there at that time when cable exploded and mm -hmm. everybody was doing a show in front of a brick wall, and that's yeah. how my generation got the exposure. Yeah, yeah. It's but it, it it is weird to me that that at one point that wasn't the standard. So I'm, I'm you know, it, it's it's hard to to think of it in terms of going from what Robert Klein was doing, which again does feel it is interesting to listen to it because he's always seemed straight laced to me. And he sounds very straight-laced. And he is, like you said, a college-educated guy. But there's still plenty that he's saying there that is not... Like, he's very feminist. He's very, a very feminist. very feminist, this, this album. Very feminist. I loved that about it. Yes. Unashamedly. Yes. And not... And also not judgmental necessarily in any way. It was just no, no. This is this and, is the reality. And while he wore his education on his sleeve, mm -hmm. he was not elitist mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But he, by his own admission, actually did say that um, uh, that he might have been perceived as too smart for the room in a mm -hmm. lot of circumstances, mm -hmm. which is uh, also interesting because if you know anything about his his history, you know that he was very very tight with Rodney Dangerfield, mm -hmm. who used to tell him all the time. Like like he tells uh, uh, he told me the story when I was interviewing him for Satiristas. He told me the story that he was going on the Tonight Show for the first time, and Rodney said to him, "Hey, you're not playing the improv. You're not doing one of those Greenwich Village coffee houses. Okay, mm -hmm. keep that in mind. You know, mm -hmm. basically, Rodney was uh, uh, an influence on him in terms of what you're." what you're doing can be more accessible right don't be elitist yeah. and and he took it to heart yeah. you know uh and i don't think he was elitist at all and he, sure. he always championed the other on the underdog you know he comes from that that rich tradition of liberal jewish new york mm -hmm. politics right. which is very very progressive you know and um all that stuff i think is in his his work i think you you get a sense of the feminism you get a sense yeah. of the of the um you know civil rights uh, issues that that he's concerned about mm -hmm. and on mind over matter one of the reasons why i chose that his first album which was the huge influence on a lot of us uh, starting out at that time was child of the 50s because mm -hmm. we were immediately after the 50s sure. you know, my generation were children of the 60s really uh so we immediately followed the 50s but all the stuff that he talked about was still around it was still in pop culture you can mm -hmm. still see howdy doody on tv in the afternoons right. Right. on local new york station you know mm -hmm. uh, um so all that stuff was present and we could relate to it um uh and and that's a fantastic album as well but i chose mind over matter specifically for six and a half minutes on side b mm -hmm. he does six and a half to seven minutes of Watergate, yes, which I when I when I first heard it right in the thick of Watergate, mm -hmm. I was like, "This is genius!" Yeah. You could have come from another planet, listened to this, and gotten a bead on exactly what Watergate was all about. Right? Yeah. He just crystallizes this elaborate, mm -hmm. you know, huge political and cultural moment mm -hmm. into some hilarious comedy that I think it's, you know, it's the least relevant of anything on his on his records today mm -hmm. and yet i think it's actually the most relevant because nothing's changed in terms of our relationship For to sure. to the truth and and bs of government right so um that I, I i found that to be a masterpiece i mean i used to know it word for word mm -hmm. and i just you know uh, we're from a circus family <laughs> you, you, you know all that stuff that was like wow man this 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 stuff that's just 
you know, inundating us every day. I mean, it was like the OJ trial of its day or, yeah. the, or the, you know, the Monica Lewinsky thing of its day. It was everywhere, every yeah. second of the day. And he just cut through it all to yeah. just the hilarious absurdity of everything about it. It's hard for that to stick out, too, because I own, you know, I've got a collection of about 200 comedy albums, and I have this side interest in the vice presidency. So I have grabbed as many Nixon Agnew related albums as I can. Really? And yes. you did not know about this album? I did not know about this album. <laughs> Do you, know the, is, you know, I'm not sure if the bit about um, landing on the moon is that one on Mind yes. Over Matter? Yeah, well, he does. He does <laughs> Sam Taylor Shop, Baltimore. <laughs> so it's one bad. of the great Agnew jokes oh, of all time. Brilliant. Which, of course, uh -huh. have no life. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Exactly, and that's Sam's Taylor Shop, Baltimore. <laughs> it's so it's so brilliant, and like again, like there's 12 albums because people were just doing it. It was became, you know, there there were counterculture guys that were making fun of it, were making the jokes, then it became okay to make the jokes, and then at some point everybody's making an LBJ right. or LBJ, and then Nixon, and then Agnew. It became just okay to do, but to still be that good. See the tennis match, the Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs. Uh, a good example of something like how a man's eyes could really be clouded. Jimmy the Greek Snyder, the best odds maker in the U.S., they say, right, had it five to two against her. You know, he thinks, well, I guess she's just a gal after all, just a gal, you know. Just a little gal. <laughs> just a little gal. What do you think? She's going to fall apart in the middle of the match? Time, my period, just a minute. <laughs> oh, uh, you got a my doll? <laughs> Oh, Christ, this is horrible. <laughs> oh, my nail broke. Time out. <laughs> Shit, I never... Well, it doesn't upset me, so it's just... Whatever. Are you kidding? She's a champion. Did you see those legs on her? Forget it. You give her 70 more pounds, she'll not only beat you in tennis, she'll kick your teeth down your throat. <laughs> She's just a little gal, you know. Still hold up against, you know, all these this detritus. That it's 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 okay. It's comedy. It's yeah. Fine, okay. So so I want to ask you. Yeah. So you've heard it for the first time mm -hmm. just earlier today. Yeah. Um, what was your take on hearing it for the first time? It's the the big thing. Well, I will say this: the first when I first listened to it, I'm like, am I listening to the right album? Because he sounds a lot like Albert Brooks. I had I didn't rem remi remember how how much young Robert Klein sounds like young Albert Brooks. They actually sound I like actually know that's that's actually news to me. I don't think of, I, I've for never thought reason, about that. I now that's going to be all I can think I'm of. I'm so sorry, <laughs> but it does. It completely holds up. I mean, you have to. You don't. Again, you don't have to have too much knowledge of the time. No. Because I didn't know the year that he was doing this when I first listened to right. it. Right. So I looked that up later. And was it 75? 76? 75? Yeah, 70s. So. Yeah, you know, that's all. I, uh, but yeah, and I, I don't feel like you needed to know any of that. Um, the Watergate stuff. I realized how little I knew about Watergate, but I knew exactly what he was talking about it, it, with the gymnast bit. I'm it, like, oh, that must have happened. Such and such must have happened. Yeah, so from Mr. Expanding. My arm went here, my leg went there. Yeah, that's and the 18 so minute gap. I've never and heard that, but he com completely just sold me on it. And I find it interesting, too, that, like, that this would work so well or that the album beforehand would work so well because to be so progressive and also make your first big mark, at least in terms of albums, that it's something that's just completely regressive or it's, you're just talking about your past so much just like hey we're looking back well that's his yeah. first album was child of the 50s right right and then he went he went from child of the 50s to mind over matter mm -hmm. where he went he went from the autobiographical stuff mm -hmm. to the immediate stuff sure. the stuff that he was experiencing then and now mm -hmm. yeah. is that a natural progression for all comics or no? um well you know carlin said that carlin yeah. said that you know he said if you look at uh 
if you look at uh, Class Clown, he goes, that's basically my autobiography mm-hmm. in stand-up. Yeah. And he goes, and then it's, it was important for me to let go of it and move on. Yeah. I suspect it's probably true for a lot of people. Um, it feels like it is for Carlin, because mm-hmm. he, he definitely dove headlong into the here and now, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder about that. But some people don't work personally. You know, right. like some people yeah. work more, more uh, like, again, I'm going to reference David Steinberg, who, mm-hmm. uh, oh, of God, the same era, so who's good. so brilliant. But David, David was more of a sort of, his stand-up is more literate mm-hmm. than it is, you know, storytelling or joke telling mm-hmm. or, uh, um, or the kind of conversational stuff that, that Klein and Carlin were doing. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to say whether or not, you know, with an artist like that, is yeah. there, is it ever autobiographical? Right. Is, is is it ever really calling upon their, you know, the references from the youth or anything mm-hmm. like that? Um, so I don't know. The other thing I also notice about, and, and when, when you tell me more about Robert Klein, not knowing as much as I could, I guess, is that you know, there is this, and again, he's, he doesn't come across as elite or excessively privileged. Even even if he was privileged, he doesn't come across as reflecting that. But there is this interesting thing about people who are privileged and progressive who are like, well, of course it should be this way. Of course we should have rights. Of course women should have rights. And that's how it comes out. It's so casual that, uh, that you know, no, this is sexist. You're, that's, that's stupid. Of course women are equal. Like, there's something really refreshing about that, that it's, it could be what Carlin would do, and Carlin would obviously hammer at it. Right. Make you feel like an asshole for feeling right. a certain way, whereas Robert Klein doesn't seem to want to do that. Well, that's interesting. I think that also is a function of the time, because a lot of people were doing that. A lot of people mm-hmm. were being very strident about those, those doors that had to be knocked down, mm-hmm. whereas Klein, again, being in that sort of post- revolutionary state mm-hmm. um, just sort of accepted it yeah and and that was the baseline from which he operated yeah, yeah. which is it is pretty interesting see I was really steeped in when I was a kid when I was really young uh, and discovering comedy and discovering you know that that this was going to be how I spent my life mm-hmm. I was steeped in real counterculture comedy uh-huh. you know I was steeped in uh, you know National Lampoon came out in 1972 I was sure. born in 57 so mm-hmm. it was like right smack there you know um, uh, Cheech and Chong uh, Carlin came through his transition by around 73 74 yeah. um, um, Saturday Night Live showed up in 75 right. National Lampoon was a powerful force uh, for just about anybody of that age who got into comedy because it was the only place you could really find, you know, pretty much anywhere you could find that kind of countercultural um, um, written comedy. Mm-hmm. And some of the people behind it were oh, just, yeah. you know, insanely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you also had The Realist, but The Realist, again, was a little bit before my generation's time. Sure. Like, I discovered The Realist slightly in retrospect, you mm-hmm. know. Um, uh, so all the comedy that was, or the uh, the tone of comedy that I was steeped in was all this countercultural stuff. Yeah. And Robert Klein came along, and he was at the point where we're not talking about it being countercultural anymore. Mm-hmm. It's now the way, it's now culture. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. you're right. That's a really interesting perspective. The other thing that I love about Klein is that he went deeper into the conventional form. Mm-hmm. As opposed to eschewing it, yeah. uh, you know, Carlin really sort of uh, pulled away from the conventional form. Mm-hmm. You know, he pulled away from joke telling. He pulled right. away from uh, um, the conventional stand-up um, 
tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a hundred percent true, but but you get what I mean. I do. 100%. Yeah. Whereas what Klein did was Klein actually dove in deeper. Klein actually was altering the form from within it mm-hmm. rather than from outside it. Sure. Like you could hear in Klein the influences of the old Borscht Belt cats. Right. You know, in yeah. fact, he even does a piece on Mind yes. Over Matter about yeah. going to see those comics mm-hmm. and the cat skills, you know. Um, uh, and, and I find them very interesting because Carlin and Klein together, they were sort of on a parallel line for a long, long time. And then they kind of diverged. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but at that time when they were on a parallel line, it always struck me as interesting that Carlin seemed like the outsider in stand-up comedy. Comedy. Yeah. And Klein seemed like somebody who was so steeped in the conventional, traditional forms of it, mm-hmm. but just just turned it inside out and made it something new, right. which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. Was it a matter of saying something new with the same techniques, or what do you think it is? What's I, I think that's it? a big part of it. I mean, a big part of it was uh, that conventional stand-up was rarely about, uh, I genuinely think this. And Klein was, in fact, saying, I genuinely think this. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't, as I say, he wasn't eschewing the whole form in order to do that. Whereas uh, so many other comics had to step outside the form in order to feel like they were doing something in which they could speak truthfully about how they felt about the world. Whereas Klein didn't. Klein stayed in that conventional, traditional format Mm -hmm. and made it new, made it it relevant. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I think he was probably the most um, uh, visible and uh, um, respected practitioner at the time who was doing that, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, but there were more things alike between him and Rodney Dangerfield than they were different. Sure. Yet they couldn't be two more different kinds of comedians. I know. That stuff always fascinated me. Mm hmm. When did you first hear this album then? Uh, The the second it came out, I was at the record store the morning it opened going to buy this album because really? I heard yeah I mean Child of the 50s just knocked me out okay. uh, and and um, you know again you have to remember that at, that at the time he was ubiquitous on all the talk shows you mm-hmm. know in the same way that Carlin was and mm-hmm. Dangerfield was and a handful of other people um, and uh, Carlin and Klein were to me a diptych mm-hmm. I always felt like the two of them together were the perfect comedian yeah uh, in reality, they both separately <laughs> each were a perfect comedian. For sure. But I felt like if you could get all the outsider stuff that Carlin was manifesting and still stay within the traditional form that Klein was manifesting, that that that's just like you know the God particle. Right. Um, right. So I idolized them, and and if, and here was the weird thing for me was the third <laughs> um, point in that tr- in that triangle holding up the plane was um, Woody Allen, who, yeah. once again, couldn't be more different from either of those two. Um, uh, but the three of them together, to me, just seemed to be, uh, if you could, if you had all the best attributes of all of those, you'd just be, you know, you'd be a god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really, really very, very aware of Robert Klein, and I loved him, and I also loved the musicality of his performance, mm-hmm. his rhythmic, uh, his, his, you know, his rhythmic um, um, uh, incantations and this, uh, you know, and the, um, you know, and the way he'd push a line, you know, <laughs> yeah. and he would do. He had all these techniques and things that were really they were they were personal. They were his own, sure. you know, but they became characteristic. And mm-hmm. so, uh, but I can tell you right now, myself, Paul Reiser, Larry Miller, 
little bit of Jerry Seinfeld, a uh, handful of other people coming up at the time. Mm-hmm. We would all do this at the end of a punchline. Uh, <laughs> you know, we all we all had that. We just we just that rhythm just caught us so much, and mm-hmm. and 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 that musicality of the way he did things um, uh, was just like a. Uh, like a song that got stuck in your head and it became it became a real challenge for a lot of us to move away from sounding like Klein. This was the year that the officials were elected and uh, uh, appointed their appointees and nine months into the year became massively retarded. <laughs> well, I don't know. It was my job and I didn't see it. Uh, well, I guess I was overzealous. Maybe. Well, maybe I was overzealous I'm, or OZ as we call it in the profession. <laughs> It's natural for us to be overzealous sometime. Well, the best of my recollection, it may have been the unwitting overzealousness of an inoperative band of recollections. You know, I think we're being entirely too suspicious. Why would anyone think that the tape would be tampered with? What kind of kooky, crazy, nutty idea? Just because Alderman gets a chance to take the tapes home that could get him 20 years. Then when the committee found out he took it home, they said, Mr. Holderman, you took it home? <laughs> And he said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best of my yeah, yeah. He's got nice, gentle eyes, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Believe me, he'll come back later with the next blockbuster. It wound up with a little hum in it. He'll have excuses, like from childhood in schools. My dog ate my homework. <laughs> uh, I don't believe any of us really do anymore, but... Um, oh, um, but it was really... There were, at the time, in the late 70s, in the New York comedy scene... Everybody, half the people were doing an impression of Carlin. Mm-hmm. Half the people were doing an impression of of Klein. Uh, a bunch of people were doing an impression of Richard Pryor. Right. Um, but that was it because they were the most profoundly meaningful comics to our generation, cutting our teeth and 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 having aspirations. Yeah. What what is what is the tipping point or what is what happens to <laughs> homogenized stand up into what it became in the eighties that. That, that made everybody want to be alt at some point. Yeah, well... Because you're talking about these counterculture influences. Yeah, And yeah. then there are a lot of guys who become... Well, again, talking so broad strokes here, um, yeah. Steve Martin was just a huge, you know, cataclysm sure. in, in all of that. Mm-hmm. Because Steve Martin, also steeped in the same sort of countercultural mm-hmm. comedy, made a conscious choice to go as far away from having any meaning yeah. or any statement as possible. Mm-hmm. So he sort of blew it wide open when he, he, he you know, became the first real postmodern comic of our generation, you know, and, and um, when he made that choice to not say a damn thing yeah. and yeah. to just be wacky, goofy, hilarious, um, it was fresh mm-hmm. and it was new yeah. when really it was you know Danny Kay I mean mm-hmm, it, it, that had been going on forever everything goes through cycles uh, you know when you talk about alternative comedy now I can't tell you how often I have this conversation with friends of mine who are aware of of, of the the um, the arcs of all of this but you know if Professor Irwin Corey showed up at Nerd Melt mm-hmm. tomorrow, mm-hmm. he'd be hailed as the greatest, new, most innovative thing ever to come along in comedy. Right. <laughs> you right. know, right. if Bob Newhart showed up today, 100%. people would be like, "Wow, that's unbelievably, you yeah. know, forward and 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 different and all that sort of stuff." So it always does go through cycles okay. for sure. Yeah. Um, um, but when Steve Martin uh, emerged, I think one of the reasons he emerged as big as he did was because he was 
an alternative to what had become kind of institutionalized. That countercultural comedy had kind of become stale in terms of okay what are we doing next yeah. we in the world of comedy you know um, and that doesn't happen often those paradigm shifts those those um, uh, shifts of, of, of sort of more don't happen often I mean when's the last time it happened in music right. not, you know I mean EDM before that 25 years of rap right you know yeah, uh, yeah. It, it just they, those those kinds of shifts don't have they have to be generational sure I think so. What if, though, if you're caught in the middle of those changes? Is, I, I guess I, you probably don't see it happen. I guess it's just something. Yeah, I don't think. It, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think it's till after yeah. the fact that you start to realize all the sort of you, you don't realize the tides. Mm-hmm. You know, you just realize these sort of the movements of molecules are, are what you're in the midst of, and it's right. only with some distance you recognize you know the tidal patterns of Do it all. Do those leave some people behind? Is that why maybe some people don't appreciate Robert Klein as well? Um, because that's an interesting point. Uh, Robert Klein is a little bit of a... Uh, I mean, he can be a figurehead, and that's great for him, but, I mean, he probably still wants to be a comic. He I mean, is a comic. You know what I mean? he, he is a comic. He's doing great he work. Here's, what, here's, I think what, here's, I think, what's happened with Robert Klein, and I say this with tremendous respect, and, and as I said, I think he's one of the greats of all time mm-hmm. and, and deserves way more accolade than, than accolades than, than he's given. Um I, I think that he went through some personal issues mm-hmm. that um, stymie the abstract things that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I know he went through a very, very difficult divorce, mm-hmm. um, had to deal with a lot of anger and resentment and all that sort of stuff. Sure. And then he had, um, you know, ageism is real in comedy. It's yep. hugely real in comedy. 100%. And, and, and um, uh, it's very difficult to be a popular stand-up and be relevant when you get to a certain age, which yeah. is what makes Carlin such an extraordinary character. Because he was in his 70s, and 15-year-olds and their 55-year-old dads were both laughing at the same stuff, yeah. and it was the stuff that they had just heard for the first time. Yes. You yeah. know, um, uh, that is really, that's off the charts. It mm-hmm. just doesn't happen. It's, been, it's phenomenal. Sure. Um, uh, so I think that um, Klein's... Uh, career took him down paths of least resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know for a while he had a show on. Um, I forget. Oh, I know. I was reading about. This it, it was earlier. on cable. It was called Klein Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it on A and E or something like that? Like yeah. that? Um, in those days when cable just sort of exploded, and um, uh, so forgive me for not remembering all the details, mm-hmm. but it was a terrific show, and uh, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be on it, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I noticed at that moment he had come out of a certain phase where he seemed to, we the comics who were on it, myself, Joe Bolster, uh, Barry Sobel, a uh, handful of, uh, I think Rob, I think uh, Paul Reiser and I talked about this, mm-hmm. but we all talked about how something's different with him, that he had, he had emerged in a really beautiful way, mm-hmm. where he, in bringing on these young comics, he was hearing, and it was all sincere, but he was hearing over and over again what I'm what I'm sharing with you now that yeah. he in fact was a profound influence on so many comics that that followed him that I think it sort of changed things for him that he went from being sort of feeling like the train has left without him or that he's mm-hmm. sort of left behind as as time moved on to feeling like oh no no I do have a place I'm gonna mm-hmm. get I'm gonna own that yeah. and dig it 
mm-hmm. um, uh, and he still, but he still does great, great work. I mean, works, I saw yeah. him not that long ago. He popped in to do a set at Gotham in really? New York, okay. um, which is generally a youngish crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're expecting to see you know whoever's playing clubs in New York today, yeah, yeah. and he showed up and absolutely blew the walls off the place. So good. You know, he's so he's good. the real deal. It's just that people make the assumptions as you seem to have that oh is he just sort of a museum piece now no he's, no, he's I, very I alive know that he's still a working comic but i i just feel for his for the way people perceive him yeah it would be nice i feel like he would hopefully want to be perceived as a comic just as much as he mm-hmm. might be perceived as that figurehead oh, i don't yeah, look yeah, at yeah. him as a figurehead as much you know again i know he's a working comic like guys yeah. like mort Saul, still fucking working yeah i only just found out that shelly berman quit but uh like or at least doesn't want to do it right now but um so it's it's, it's one of those things where you know you, you don't you don't have to be a working comic, but it would be nice to be perceived as somebody I, still working. On I it. will tell you this, and I'm going to send this link to to Robert Klein, so I, I hope he doesn't take any offense at this. But mm-hmm. uh, in retrospect, I think he made a career mistake, mm-hmm. which was this is ironic because it's actually perfectly authentic as a comedian from for him to have done this mm-hmm. but that in terms of the way the world is it, it, it may have had a negative influence on where he was going in terms of relevance and in terms of being embraced by a younger audience mm-hmm. and that was that as he found himself becoming an older man he did a special on hbo which was all about basically becoming an old jewish guy Mm -hmm. and um he ended up getting tremendous amounts of work on the on the condo circuit Uh and playing to older jewish guys older jewish people um that's what i meant by the path of least resistance in terms Mm -hmm. of career um uh you know that's something you never saw carlin do you never saw carlin say whatever it is that i'm going through puts me in this place mm-hmm. rather than where I want to be. Sure. And um, uh, again, I, I, I certainly don't mean to be insulting to Robert Klein about this, but but I think that may have something to do with why uh, some younger comedy fans sort of wrote him off because he seemed like mm-hmm. it seemed like they were talking. He was talking to their parents when right. if they bother to listen to him any night he pops up at a club in New York, they'll mm-hmm. see that he's talking directly to them. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there's weird things like that. You know, you, you can never really say what a career does relative to what an artist does, relative to what an audience does. It's, sure. It's, it's a weird kind of balance of the universe's forces. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's not dissimilar to the thing we were talking about in style and the waves that the style come. You can... You should feel free, I think, to stick with whatever style works for you, or stick it. And you don't have to. I don't want to call it evolving because that makes it sound like you're staying behind. But you don't have to change with with the zeitgeist. In terms you of don't. Comedy what you monster. don't want to be is fashionable. What you don't want right. to be is just follow a trend. Right. You want to be who you are and true to who you are. Mm-hmm. And every bad um, comic I've ever seen is trying too hard to stick. To a, yeah. A, you know. Yeah. That's what I mean about you know for Klein that was really authentic for Klein mm-hmm. that's what he was dealing with. Yeah. And um, and you know being a New York Jew coming from an immigrant family that's got to inform him as he as he grows older mm-hmm. that wasn't the case for Carlin he didn't sure. have that same kind of a background you know that that informed who he was or what he was you yeah. know um, so it's very authentic and genuine uh, uh, that Klein did that but he but it was a phase mm-hmm. 
and that he's moved out of and yeah. a lot of people perhaps may not have recognized really what it, you know how legitimately great a comic he still is yeah um uh but I just, I just loved him. I just, I used to watch him, and I used to say, I mean, when I was a kid, I would watch him, and I'd go, "Man, he's talking. He's talking to me. He's mm-hmm. talking. He's not talking down to me. Right. He's not talking above me. He's just nailing me right between the eyes, mm-hmm. and it's hilarious." Yeah. I first really wanted to be a comedian in the fullest sense in the Borscht Belt, in the hotels in Up New York State. I was a college student working at the hotel, and I used to see the shows on Saturday night, pure showbiz, and the comedian was my favorite. And he'd come out, be introduced, for, for the fourth time this summer, ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome the fabulous, fabulous, fabulous Mickey Lee! You know, he's a quick name like that. Mickey Lee, hey! Never Boris, no, Nazanovich. Mickey Lee, hey! Come on. And always a lot of quick energy, a lot of put-down. It was amazing. The thing was insult right away. You'd go to a bald, hey, you bald-headed man, you look like a Jewish Mr. Clean. <laughs> you two bald-headed men, you put your heads together, you make an ass of yourself. But seriously. <laughs> then uh, maybe a, a lip service to intellectual jokes like, Dean Rusk, you know, something quick. <laughs> Just one name, you know, a quickie, you know. And then into the joke. And the part that mystified me the most is English jokes with the Yiddish punchline. I don't understand Yiddish. And I'm listening to the guy's story, and it's a beauty with great timing, and it leaves me hanging there, you know? You know what happened last night? I went to my wife. I said, let's make love. She said, I can't. Went to the doctor, got a pill. You know what happened? have to ask an old man, pardon me, what did he say, sir? I have your gizzard in the heavenly hell. I see. Thank you. You know, and it's, and it's a perspective that I'm not hearing from anybody else. I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing anybody just accepting that this is a world that has a feminist viewpoint or a world that has an inclusive viewpoint or, you know, uh, a world that's, that's a progressive world as the baseline. You know, you just didn't hear that anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's gutsy to do that. I do. I think it's it was, not I think he was true. I think that when <laughs> yeah. Klein emerged as the, the comedian he he was at, at the time, that was tremendously brave. Mm-hmm. Tremendously brave. Yeah. Um, uh, because he probably was conscious of shrinking his potential audience. Sure. Um, but he didn't give a shit. He just kept going forward. Yeah. You know? He's just great. He's just great. I think he's one of the all-time greats. He deserves his own wing in the Comedy Hall of Fame. Agreed. No, this, this is... I'm Again, I'm, I'm used to having seen him on TV or used to having seen him or listened to him on the... Um, that Second City, there was a Second City history book that also had two CDs with it. And he, That's right. He did the bits in between where he would tell you, here's a great, he introduced me to like, uh, uh, let's see, Adam McKay and all these other guys because I heard his voice talking about it. I'm like, oh, Robert Klein's talking about this. Uh-huh. You know, it felt yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so so I guess that's, I, I'm. when was the first time you saw him live? Uh, I saw him live at Carnegie Hall. Ooh. Actually, no. I, I, that's not the first time I saw him okay. live. I, okay. It's, <sighs> first time I saw him live, I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. I was going to the University of Pennsylvania. And shortly after my freshman year started, he was playing a tiny little room called The Main Point, mm-hmm. right outside of Philadelphia in Bryn Mawr. And uh, no, I take that back. This is not the first time I had seen him. The first time I had seen him was at Carnegie Hall. Okay. It was one of the, uh, I think he used to call the shows the f- 
first annual Robert Klein reunion and second <laughs> annual Robert Klein reunion. I, f- I forget exactly how it went. Uh, it was some play on that. But anyway, um, so I saw he was playing at the main point. Maybe 150 seats, 200 seats. Tiny little room. I was like, I got to see Robert Klein. I got to see Robert Klein. I got to see Robert Klein. My college roommate at the time and the few friends that I had made when I got there were all like, yeah, the comedy fans. And they were all like, yes, let's go see Robert Klein. So we all head on out to Bryn Mawr and we're at the main point. I got there like an hour early <laughs> so I could sit Shit. right in the front row. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, I knew everything he had ever done word for word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so he started doing uh, doing some bits and uh do you remember uh, the scary oo's um he used to do a bit i think i think it might be on child of the 50s this. he did okay. a bit about you know that <laughs> that scary music in movies and that he would talk about how like you know we should have that in life uh-huh. and he started doing this this scary oo thing and um and then he was talking about uh uh uh, how hard that is to do uh-huh. how hard it is to actually man, I can't do it now I could at the time but mm-hmm. my voice cracks now I can't um, uh, but I had rehearsed it a million times because I was a, a Robert Klein freak mm-hmm. so he was talking about how that's a really difficult sound effect to do and then he goes but wind is easy anybody can do wind and he points to me in the front row he goes even this schmuck can do wind and he hands me the microphone and i start doing wind and i start doing bigger and bigger wind and he's pretending like he's getting blown and just as he gets to the edge of the, sca- the stage i just go and uh place freaked out because he had just done five minutes about how hard it is to do that he loved it he just he, he pulled me up out of my seat. He sat in the seat, you know, the whole thing being like, okay, all right, I guess I guess you're funny, so you do the show. And I was on stage. I'd never been on stage before. And I just said, uh, I'd like to thank my opening act, Mr. Robert Klein. And then uh, uh, I did the one thing that I could think of doing, which was an, uh, just an awful impression of Ed Sullivan. <laughs> I was doing Ed Sullivan introducing Robert Klein and all this. And then he ultimately jumped back on the stage and took me off. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> the next day, I'm, I'm going to audition for some comedy troupe mm-hmm. at the University of Pennsylvania. And I run into this guy and he goes, oh my God, you were on stage with Robert Klein last night. <laughs> and they go, yeah. And he's like, how long have you been working with Robert Klein? I knew it. Oh, it's fucking <laughs> great. I'm like, not working with Robert Klein. I was in the front row. I'm an idiot. <laughs> and they were like, really? We, we were arguing for, apparently there was a whole bunch of other people there who were into comedy that I hadn't met yet who were at that show and they were arguing amongst themselves whether or not I was a plant or like was I his protege or right, something that right. he brought up, whatever. And I was like, no, I'm just an idiot. And, um, uh, and they go, well, you got to meet this guy and you got to meet that guy and all of a sudden i met all the the people all the students who were like years older than i who were into comedy Mm -hmm. and um and then i called my girlfriend at the time who was going to fordham university in the bronx and i told her this story you're not going to believe what happened because she knew i was going to see my hero robert klein and she goes and i go you're not going to believe what happened and she's like oh that's amazing that's this that this that I get a call from her a couple hours later going, I got you a gig. She booked me into Fordham University. Oh, my God. Just on the strength of this story. And I'm like, that's fantastic. I don't have an act. What are you talking about? I've never been on stage before. And and she said, well, you got like, you know, four months. Uh, All right. Try and get an act together. And in four months, I got an act together. And it was my first 
professional stand-up gig was at Fordham University based on the fact that Klein had brought me up to just goof around for like five minutes. Uh, Yeah, it was a crazy story. But you loved, did you, I'm assuming you knew you wanted to do stand-up at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, in fact, I had actually been, I had actually been going to the improv uh, and uh, doing the open mics there, but I I didn't have an act. Sure. yeah, I was at that point where I dreamed of having an act. So to get a gig was like, yeah. we're way ahead of schedule here. Thank you very much. That's astounding. Yeah, but uh, but you know it pushed me and pushed me and pushed me until I you know could pull off a gig. Um, wow. Yeah. There's no recording of that, is there? I that hope show. not. Ah! <laughs> I, would, I would kill to see. I don't know, just uh, or hear you getting pulled up on stage because uh, that would just be fantastic uh, it so was good. it was it was great it was it was I mean I was just like but I was more it wasn't about me performing it was sure. about oh my god of course Robert Klein of course <laughs> you know because yeah. they were Robert Klein and George Carlin I mean you know mm-hmm. that that's they were just the voice of my comic generation to me were you did you collect albums or were you just getting the stuff you liked or were you just like let's try this let's try this let's oh try yeah this. man i went i went in both directions i went forward and i went backward i mean mm-hmm. it was you know uh i have it's so funny because when i was coming here i told you i pulled out the the vinyl that i have of mind over matter uh and um uh, as i was going through my vinyl i i found all this stuff all this old bob newhart stuff and 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 um stan freeberg stuff and everything mm-hmm. which are still in the plastic New York Public Library sleeves because I stole them all. I stole comedy albums like a tawdry chicken thief from the New York Public Library. Yeah, anything I could get my hands on. That's awesome. Yeah. When did you, how early did you start realizing that was an important thing to do? Uh, to listen to old comics yeah, as well as the new comics? Back. You know, it never was a realization. It always sort of yeah. seemed like like the thing to do because yeah. okay. you know when when I was a kid, we'd watch panel shows and mm-hmm. it would be you know Henry Morgan would be on them mm-hmm. and he would be hilarious. Yeah. So yeah. I'd be watching you know Cheech and Chong on Don Kirshner's rock concert uh-huh. late at night on a Saturday night or Friday night. But then in the afternoon on, on you know, what's my line? I'd see Henry Morgan and yeah. Tom Poston and, you know, and Stan Freeberg was still around. And, yeah. and, and um, Steve Allen would pop up on talk shows all the time. Really crazy mixes of, of comedy artists. So they were sort of everywhere at the same time. Yeah. So it never seemed to me like, oh, I'm going backwards now. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time I ever felt like, oh, I'm going backwards now was when I really started to go crazy over the Marx Brothers and then I just went you know the Thalia in New York would have a Marx Brothers festival they would Mm -hmm. do you know 24 48 hours of Marx Brothers movies finally rediscovering them exactly and um, so they would have these festivals that would go on forever and I would just bring a bag lunch and Mm -hmm. you know my cousin and I would go there and we just watch and fall asleep for a couple hours Uh wake up and catch the next one and you know and yeah just do 24 hours of Marx Brothers and and, then uh, uh, and that going down that road, I discovered you know W. C. Fields. Also, the other thing is about that time. Also, those those movies were on TV all the time. Yeah. You know the 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 local stations that didn't have enough 
programming would mm-hmm. always get the cheapest programming they could get you know and you'd see may west movies every sunday morning or yeah, abbott and costello i was a big abbott and costello fan in fact my production company is called susquehanna hats <laughs> so i was a huge abbott awesome. and costello fan i love them to me the susquehanna hats piece mm-hmm. of abbott and costello's which is an old vaudeville piece um uh and there's a several different iterations that they did but that piece to me is the very definition of comedy it's yeah. it's it's complete and total anarchy in in the context of trying to maintain order and control yeah. and to me it is the definition of what comedy really is funny thing happened the other night before the nick game the national anthem record didn't work in chicago or something sent everybody into a panic what can we do can we forfeit the game what do we do we can't start the, they didn't play it, it broke and the national anthem is it two nothing in the favor of the home team we can't start the show you can't put a game without the national we have a national anthem fetish in the united states when i go to madison square garden to see the knicks play i didn't forget what country i'm in where are we, Bill? Belgium? Oh, say. Oh, thank you very much. We're in America, I forgot. The fans of the big game are chomping at the bit to get the game over. They're clapping sooner and sooner. And the home of the... They're starting at the beginning. Oh, say. There's a message there somewhere. Come on. It's a four-octave range. Even Metropolitan Opera stars can't cut it. And the rocket's rocket. When have you ever done that song in one octave? Oh, and the rocket. You have to switch gears like a ten-tongue Mack truck. It was written for a goose. I don't know who could sing that. Those were days when all the old stuff was still readily available. Mm-hmm. I was a huge Danny Kaye fan, and I, it actually shocked me to find out that George Carlin was a huge Danny Kaye fan. In fact, when George Carlin started doing comedy, his, he modeled his, himself on Danny Kaye. That's crazy. Um, uh, so it was just a different time it wasn't like now when you watch the tonight show it's only the people who are hot sure you know back then you'd watch the tonight show and discover uh, the the strangest mix of people from different generations and so they were always around so it wasn't a real challenge to go to go oh i'm interested in that or i'm interested in that yeah um which is handy because it was pre-internet sure yeah yeah yeah. but i also uh, I, i remember in the seven i think it was in the 70s maybe mid-70s at the Museum of Broadcasting opened in New York. And um, I remember going down there and I heard people talk about Ernie Kovacs. And so I went down to the Museum of Broadcasting and watched every bit of Ernie Kovacs that I could find. And, you know, and I even found it's what actually turned me on to Abby Hoffman, who was an activist in the 60s. -hmm. We knew him from the the politics of the day. Mm -hmm. But he had been doing experimental videos in the mid 70s when video camera had just been, you know, when the video camera had just been really made available. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember seeing a bunch of really hilarious Abby Hoffman stuff. Really? In it. Yeah, I saw the first the first time I ever was exposed to Father Guido Sarducci was mm-hmm. at some stuff at the Museum of Broadcasting, awesome. where he was doing. There were these video artists that were finding these underground performers and doing stuff with them and all. Um, wow. Yeah, and I remember going to uh, watch the old Steve Allen show mm-hmm. and um, and the old Sid Caesar shows at the Museum of Broadcasting. So any time I would hear about something like that, I'd be like, all right, next time I go down there, I'm going to spend a day just looking right. through this stuff. And you know, there's something you're talking about, too, is that those people stuck around. I mean, longevity was a little different then. There's, there's so much, and I apologize, I know I'm repeating myself because I've talked about this on previous episodes, but... 
at least over here, we're very in America. We're very much what have you done for me lately when it comes to somebody who's yes. been famous or yes. done something good. Whereas, yes. you know, there was a point where I think Groucho Marx at least got to live off of being Groucho Marx because he deserved it. Right. Because he gave us something so pure that we really okay. No, you're you're always Groucho Marx. Thank you so much. Right. And and you know when I was a kid, I I could watch reruns of You Bet Your Life. Yeah. So you know I could see Groucho Marx all the time mm-hmm. at the Three Stooges was on every afternoon. I came from from school and the Three Stooges was on every afternoon. So that was not old show business to me. Right. That was immediate. I saw it every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bunch of those kinds of things would would make themselves really apparent. So I was always aware of of the huge spectrum. Uh, you know, the past to the to the the future. Yeah, I was always looking for who's new and young coming up that was interesting, mm-hmm. that was exciting, that I could learn from. Whatever. Um, being a Steve Martin fan before anybody ever knew who he was mm-hmm. was was you know the kind of thing that my friends and I cherished was yeah. that you know we're seeing Steve Martin in a hundred. 200 seat room mm-hmm. called the Bijou in Philadelphia driving for two hours to go so and see good. Steve Martin in a little 200 seat room just because we had seen him on the Mike Douglas show or something Amazing. you know nobody knew who he was in fact by the second show he, he was doing two shows that night mm-hmm. and he actually said to the first show audience um, the second show is not sold out if you want to stay you're more than welcome to I'll be doing a whole new act oh, and we all God. laughed and we thought of course he can't be doing a whole new uh-huh. act and he did a whole new act we stayed uh-huh. and he did a whole new 90 minutes Wow. Uh, and it was just breathtaking um uh so you know i was always looking for the new cool weird thing that struck my fancy but it was always really a part of it because the other thing also was you know first comics i ever saw were were uh at the catskills Mm -hmm. my family used to go up for a weekend whatever and see see a catskills comic you know um uh pat cooper records were you know in all my family's households we had pat cooper records you Mm -hmm. know um um the first comic i ever saw live i was about nine or ten years old and we took a family trip down to miami beach a long drive where you get to stop at pedro south of the border oh god oh, geez. <laughs> um right i'm taking that. you back oh boy yeah uh and uh we stayed at a little motel on collins avenue north of the strip mm-hmm. you know where the families stayed you didn't stay down where you know sinatra stayed sure, you, sure. you stayed up in the the motels not the hotels mm-hmm. and uh the, this place had a, a little lounge and appearing nightly tubby boots and i had never heard of tubby boots but he had his photo on the you know on the uh the board there by the showroom and he was this big huge fat guy who did a character of a, a stripper because he had such big breasts <laughs> that he put a wig on and put pasties oh. on and he did this character of this stripper and it was an adults only show uh-huh. So I snuck in the room. <laughs> the, the room you'd go through. You'd go through this. You, you remember how those sixties, fifties, and sixties Miami Beach places where they were all like you know chrome and glass. You know they'd be just like chrome frames and glass windows. And in the showroom, which was right off the entrance, uh, they just put a black velvet to cover the glass, uh-huh. and you'd go into this dark, you know, black velvet, black velour. Uh, uh, quote unquote nightclub with yeah. candles on the table, knockers, mm-hmm. you know, sticks with mallets that you that's how you applauded. You okay. knocked on the table. Uh, and um, so I snuck in the door when the mater d people at the door weren't looking, and I went in between the curtain and the glass, <laughs> the glass wall, so I could watch some of this 
show because I had never seen a, a live stand-up comedian before. Yeah. And uh, so the first one I ever saw live was Tubby Boots. And I was just like, I can't <laughs> believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. There was nothing that I could really take from it because right. he was a very particular kind of entertainer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except I got, oh, this is what it's like to be in a nightclub. Right. Being right. a comedian, being watching a comedian in a nightclub. Mm-hmm. I was completely hooked. I was completely, completely hooked. But, you know, my exposure <laughs> to stand-up came from the from the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah. You know, and the Ed Sullivan show had, you could see Lenny Bruce and you could see Morty Gunty. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so that, that's, again, another thing about the, the variety of... of comedian that we were exposed to back then was robert klein first time you saw him on a show it had to have been right or did you hear him somewhere um actually i think i first heard him because in the 70s we had the king biscuit flower hour Uh which was the alternative radio and um we had a lot of that kind of post 60s alternative kind of radio college radio stations Mm -hmm. and they would play a lot of things that that you couldn't hear anywhere else i believe that's the first time i ever heard robert klein was on one of those because now comedy is maybe a clip only because the artist is on that day. Right. You know, like yeah. I, I remember hearing some uh, clips of Weird Al the other day because he was on a radio show, but that's it. Yeah. They're not going to play him in circulation. That's so good. So you heard him first. Do you know, I, I you think so. Don't yeah. Remember what you heard? Yes, I think it was. Uh, I, I do. Let me see if I can remember this. Um, I don't remember. I think it was the Lithuanian. No, it had to be before that because it was Child of the Fifties stuff. Okay. It, it was. It was something off of Child of the Fifties. Um, but a lot of the stuff that comics in the 70s, you know, Carlin in the AM and FM days mm-hmm. when, when he was to take off some put-ons, yeah. you know, he had uh, Wonderful Wino mm-hmm. and um, Klein had had the uh, Lithuanian language records uh-huh. yeah, and all that stuff. So it was, it was like radio drop-in friendly. Definitely. Yeah. So you'd hear a lot of that, a lot of it like that. But I remember seeing him on Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas and, you know, he's a good-looking young guy sure. with long hair, mutton chop sideburns. Uh, so there was a counterculture streak to him, but it wasn't hippie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember him doing this thing about buying an apple at the, going to a supermarket and that, uh, you know, when it comes time to weigh the fruit, they just throw this apple down on the on the scale and it's like, oh, it's 10 pounds, you know, before... <laughs> Before it even settles, and then and that's how they, you know, that's how you get ripped off and everything. And, and then at the end, it, he called it back with how, as they're packing it at the end, the last thing they put on top of all the eggs and the bread was the ten-pound apple, and this is the, the guy throwing it in, and it's just this silly little goofy stuff. But uh-huh. I just, uh, I, I just immediately took to to his voice and his rhythm and and yeah. the, the mechanics of it too, because he was right. a tremendous craftsman, you know, still is. Do you do you remember when you first started breaking comedy down? I mean, was it just natural for you? Because it's always interesting for me. Some people have it. Some people naturally have it, and then some people go out of their way to try and figure it out. Um, I don't know that this answers your question it's okay. directly. My questions are always rambling anyway. Right. But I, how I discovered comedy on a real emotional level mm-hmm. came from the fact that when I was a kid, I had amblyopia, uh-huh. also known as lazy eye. Okay. Uh, at one point, I had surgery on my eyes to correct it, which did a certain amount, whatever. But when I was a little kid, I had to wear eye patches oh, okay. and uh, glasses that were always broken because with lazy eye, you don't really have depth perception. Oh, You're not shit, using yeah. both eyes simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So most of my depth perception was learned, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and very flawed. Uh-huh. So I was constantly bumping into things and falling down, and, and uh, so I would get these glasses and, and you know, 
bump them on corners as I was going around corners because I had no depth perception. Yeah. And they would break, and my parents would go, well, we're not going to get you new glasses, so I'd have a big hunk of scotch tape on the glasses Uh and constantly falling into things, bumping into things, tripping over things, and and, uh, all that sort of stuff. And I remember being about six or seven years old and going to see Jerry Lewis, a Jerry Lewis movie, And it dawned on me. It, it was a, it was a conscious intellectual realization. He's a movie star, and he's doing everything that I'm getting in trouble for. <laughs> so I made the decision. I'm, I'm really I really do remember consciously making the decision that every time I fall over or bump into something or general klutzy nonsense. I would make it look like it was my idea and make it funny. Hello. 126 unfortunate Americans suffer from Jergens myasthenia. A dreaded disease in which the nose mysteriously slides off. There is no known cure for Jergens myasthenia, but there is hope. Oh, jeez, hope! Are you kidding me? Hope! They don't even have the laboratory set up for this one yet. I think put the Bunsen burners in here. I think we can... Let's see. Do you like coffee or Sanka when you work, doctor? And how do you spell this disease? Or should we call it a syndrome? Oh, my God. And that's how it all happened for me. Holy shit. Yeah. Jerry Lewis. What, what Jerry Lewis movie was it? Probably The Nutty Professor. Okay. Probably. Yeah. That's so good. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's always... I never like to assume that people had the getting over their, you know, their, their, their weaknesses and that that's what becomes their comedy and that's what becomes their... But it is interesting when somebody has that, that story legitimately. You know? Yeah, okay. yeah, I guess. Um, and, and then eventually it just became a sort of... It became a personality, really. It became, sure. you know, how I interacted with people was as I was the funny guy mm-hmm. so that no matter how you made fun of me or no matter how much of an idiot I was, mm-hmm. no matter how uncool or dopey I was... It couldn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I completely understand. I how often, and maybe I'm being like, maybe I've got the blinders on about this, but how often does a personality trait that runs through a, a, a ribbon of, of, of certain humans become something you can turn into a career pretty direct? Well, you know, that's the thing that I always say about comedians. People always ask. Oh, sorry, baby. Uh, I just killed your cat. Um, <laughs> People always say, like, you know, do you, especially now, you know, after the Robin Robin Williams uh, mm-hmm. sad, sad tragedy of, of him offing himself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the sadness behind the clown and, the sure. you know, and uh, people always say, do you think comedians are more screwed up than other people? And I always say, I don't think so. I think if you, if it's the human condition, we're all miserable and psychotic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's, you know, I really do believe it's the human condition. I think if you really did some sort of, I don't know what the protocol for this would be, but some sort of study of pipe fitters mm-hmm. or auto mechanics or school teachers that you'd come to the same conclusion, which yeah. is we're all damaged. Sure. The difference is that comedians, instead of shoving it in the closet and trying to overcome it, will ride it into the sunset. Of course. Of and course. so, you know, it's more apparent that that's going on with comedians. Um, uh, and perhaps that is what makes it such a tremendous tremendous art form is that behind it all is this this acceptance of 
this uh, the well the crazy uh, the crazy house of mirrors the uh, the old French uh, I don't speak French so I I can't remember it but there's a saying about you know the world of comedy is a, is, is is humanity in the house of mirrors mm-hmm. uh, I suspect that's probably what it's all about is that it's just we we just we in comedy take this absurdity and pain of the human condition and go. Well, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And may as well just find something to laugh about. Right. You know, I mean, I, all that stuff sounds kind of cliche and, and, and somewhat trite, but um, I don't know. I just think it's uh, I, I think it's part of what makes comedy really such an elaborate art form. Uh, I, I, I don't think people I think we in it do do get this. And a lot of the fans and a lot of people who I think more more and more people who are becoming interested in comedy have this perspective on it which is that it really is a very very rich art form Mm -hmm. i mean if you did comedy appreciation courses at the university level Mm -hmm. it would make music appreciation look like bullshit (laughs) seriously i mean the comedy appreciation if you really understand the art form and what's really fascinating about about how the art form also has as one of the colors on its palette how it's perceived by the listener mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know and that just is that turns it from a chess game to a, one of those three-tiered chess games right. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that right you know which makes it so rich and interesting um i love the i, I just i love the fact that the moment is what really matters I and mean, yeah. you can craft the joke all you want but what's happening in that room it could sabotage everything every little bit of work you've worked on it or turn something really ordinary into something extraordinary because of the people in that room with you that night right you know yeah i mean I, that's one of the reasons it's i i think maybe for me that a comedy or at least stand-up dropped off for me and i forgot about it in a way like i didn't think about it because i didn't go see live comedy you can't in upstate new york you can't really go see live comedy that's where i'm from so you can't where, see where it where uh oneonta uh, okay. You probably have no idea where that is near Cooperstown. Okay. Yeah, no, thing. I know. I, yeah. I know a little bit where. Yeah. It is. But you know, we used to do these gigs. We used to do these gigs upstate all sure. the time from from New York. We drive for like five hours Ugh. to go and do a gig for you know twenty five bucks because yeah. stage time was stage time. Of course. And we used to drive up to Nyack and up into the Kingston. Uh huh. You know, and all that sort of stuff just for one night or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but like a great, you know, and I and I forgot about it, but it it is sort of. It, I think I forgot about it because I wasn't going to see it live. I didn't have the yeah. opportunity to see it live. So I had movies. I had TV. Right. Um, if I had started collecting albums more then I think I, I would have been a little more aware of it. But you do miss something if you don't get to go see it live. If you're not getting the experience of watching successes and pe- watching people bomb. Mm-hmm. And not for for educational purposes, even mm-hmm. not not necessarily to judge them for bombing as everybody bombs. No, but. it's because it, it, because comedy at its best is in the moment. It's mm-hmm. in that room at that night, and you know that moment with that group of people and that particular performance of it. It's it's more like jazz than it is like rock and roll. Right. That's why it gets harder for me to judge stuff that I will probably never like. Yeah. It's you know? why it's why people like Rick Shapiro are so interesting. Rick mm-hmm. Shapiro is the probably the most jazz like stand up working today uh-huh. in that you can't judge him on any given performance. Right. It's the breadth of his entire oeuvre. You know, yeah. you're not always seeing a definitive recording. Mm-hmm. Um, but you watch him over and over again and you go there is some serious shit going on here. <laughs> there is some really interesting stuff going on. But, you know, you mentioned the homogenization, um, uh, and that happened, I think, uh, in the 80s. That actually, I think, um, 
it was both blessing and a curse the the cable boom and what it did for for comedy mm-hmm. uh, it exposed you to a lot of people it tr- created a tremendous amount of work it gave a lot of people an outlet uh, and exposure uh, and you could discover a lot of really phenomenal talent but because they were TV networks and they were TV networks that were dying for advertising mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff the homogenization became universal and because it was so ubiquitous I mean you could not in the 80s and early 90s you could not flick through the cable channel without coming across three comedians standing in front of a brick wall oh, on three yeah. different networks any improv. given any given moment you turn on mm-hmm. the TV um, and then the um, clubs opened in every strip mall across America and became sort of McDonald's eyes yeah. if you will um, I think that had a lot to do with not just the, I think the TV aspect had a lot to do with the homogenizing of comedy itself, mm-hmm. but then the fact that it was in every strip, ball, strip mall and what have you had a lot to do with the sort of desensitizing of an audience to what stand-up really was. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, when you're seeing Bill Burr, you're eating the finest of filet mignon. Mm-hmm. They used to go into McDonald's, you know, yeah. in the 80s and 90s. They were used to just going to McDonald's. Yeah. And that turned people off, I think. Yeah. And like anything else, just, you know, stand-up comedy today is exactly and not at all like your dad's stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? was, it, was it exciting, though, or was it frustrating trying to have your own voice, though, while that shit's happening? Yeah, it really, for me it was, and I don't know how much of that is, is a function of what was going on in the world of comedy and the business and uh-huh. all, and how much of it was just a function of me, okay. but I, I found, I struggled to find a voice. I'm not even clear what it is now, mm-hmm. you know? Um, that's always sort of been my kind of challenge there. Um, yes, it was hard for a lot of people to find a voice, but at the same time, it was also easier for some others. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, Bobcat Goldthwait is a great example. Yeah. He he ended up with such a clear, distinctive voice, literally, literally. as well as yeah. figuratively, um, that he ultimately ultim- uh, became somewhat saddled by it. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, it allowed people like Emo Phillips to emerge and right. Jake Johansson and, you know, um, people with very, very clear, definitive styles. Whereas it took somebody like uh, Brian Regan a little bit longer to mm-hmm. emerge because there is no one thing about Brian Regan, right. which is why Brian Regan makes everybody laugh all the time yeah. to a, the to a ridiculous degree. Mm-hmm. Is because he's so you know there's just such a breadth to who he is. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's always good and bad with everything. You know, I'm sure you know jazz artists bitch and moaned when rock and roll took over. You know, so just. You know, that's kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah. At least it's all still comedy. It's nice to be able to have a thing called comedy. It's never been like, in my lifetime, it's never been like it is now, which is unbelievably great. Unbelievably great. First of all, you can find your audience without having to go through any arbiters. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. the internet is out there. And again, this is starting to sound like a cliche, but, you know, (laughs) we're living in a world where I can't believe you know i listen to certain i'm on certain podcasts that get hundreds of thousands of hits and like i I can listen to it for 10 minutes i don't know how people like there's no accounting for what people will respond to and that's beautiful like there's never been a time where it it, it is so pure for a comedian you do not have to compromise what you are about for anybody anymore and you can still make a living and possibly even a a really great living and possibly even you know rise to some great great heights as a comic
I love the harmonica. It's a neat, nifty little instrument. Every Civil War movie is always a night before the battle gathered round the campfire, a guy playing the harmonica singing. Where are you from, boy? <laughs> Virginia, sir. <laughs> boy? Yes, sir. You ever been in a battle before? No, sir. But I'm aiming to. Boy? Yes, sir. You better stop playing that goddamn harmonica. <laughs> One time, just idly, I was sitting in bed, and I put it in my mouth and breathed. And it played a tune like my breathing out. With no hands and breathing. And I thought to myself, this would make a hell of a nurse's aid. If a guy is sick in the hospital, a nurse can slip one of these in his mouth, Hear how he's breathing, go away, play cards. <laughs> Any problem, she hears right away, musically. <laughs> Shoves the oxygen in his mouth and saves it. You know, we used to have to worry about five people in television who would let you get on their show right. Right. to reach six or eight million people so that you could get the 150 people you wanted to come see you in Chicago next week. Right. You know? Right. That's not true anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think there's just amazing work being done all around the world. That's the other thing has gone global. Mm -hmm. You know, um, people from around the world are discovering each other and uh, um, it's really great to see that influence happening. I just think comedy's more alive than it ever has been. Yeah. It's really cool. It's really exciting. There's not, not a day goes by where somebody doesn't turn me on to something where I go, ah, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's just more and more and more every day. It's, it's really cool. It's actually nice to hear the, the, the five important guys perspective, which is the other end of people saying, man, can you imagine if I made it big and got cold, called over to Johnny's couch? Though That would have been my whole career. People are like, well, that doesn't happen anymore. But again, like you say, that doesn't happen anymore either. You don't have the five guys in your way right. to, to getting a small gig. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you may, it's a, it is a sacrifice, but it's also one of those things. Is like you're only sacrificing it if you had the chance to ever be on Johnny's show in the first place. So you know. It's, well, what it really boils yeah. down to is your own integrity. Now it yeah. boils down to you. You've got. You have to do all the work yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody's going to tell you what you need to do to be successful. You yeah. got to do what you what, what you determine is what you need to do, and and for an artist that's great i mean it just it puts all the onus on you figure it out yeah you have to figure it out yourself you, you have no excuse if again if i can buy this many comedy albums and do yeah. all the research in the world that i want yeah you yeah, know, yeah it's at my fingertips i bought half of these for 50 cents a piece yeah so. and and some really really you know amazing new talent is emerging in the past you know past few years it's just it's really cool, really exciting. I mean, like, what the hell is a Kyle Kinane? It's unbelievable. <laughs> Whatever the hell it is, it's unbelievable. So you know, much. what the hell is a Rory Scovel? Uh -huh. I've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. It's awesome. You know, I could just go on and on and on. It, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for the sake of newer comedians that does make it easier to find a voice. I think it, I, I can't imagine it isn't. You know, this would be, this is somewhat telling. I was talking to Robbie Pra, who's one of the programming people at Just for Laughs, Montreal mm -hmm. and Chicago and Toronto. And he said, you know, 
we used to do this festival and we'd have like 250 acts and like you know 20 of them were like stars mm -hmm. like that people that brought their own audience mm -hmm. he goes now we work with 350 people and 320 of them are stars that's crazy because yeah. you can find your own audience yeah. now you know um and uh that sure seems fertile yeah yeah i mean and it, it's nice because it, it actually makes well it makes me feel better because having i used to be a bit of a comedy snob i think i'm less of a comedy snob now because i'm fully aware how much that's just my brain painting what's good and bad yeah i you went know? through that phase too yeah i think everybody does yeah help, but like we we're talking about a couple weeks ago it does help you uh, come up with a standard, even if you stray from that standard. It's good to have it. Yeah, well, yeah, you put it as standard, but I, I, I think it's healthier to characterize it as taste. Sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I would just say, well, that's not really my taste. Yeah. But I used to write it off as, well, that's not comedy. That's yeah. not funny. And I realized that's just crazy. But I, you're talking to an idiot here. It took me so long to get Andy Kaufman. I used to. I had the, the unbelievable privilege of being able to watch him at the Improv in New York. Oh, you know, shit. and and. Yeah. Every all the comics, the improvs had this little doorway into the showroom, and whenever certain people were on, that door would just be crammed with all the comics who couldn't fit in the back of the room. Uh, and Andy would be on; everybody would be crammed in there, and and I'd just be like, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. I just don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it. And then one night, just like that, we're all crammed in watching it, and it was like somebody hit me in the head with a shovel. All of a sudden, this light flicked on, and I went, oh, now I get it. This is genius. But it took me a long time. Sometimes there are some acts, though, that are feel like they're designed that way. Like, I want you to be hit over the head with this enough times. I want you to be annoyed. I want you to not get it so that when you do get it, yeah, you know? I mean, I, yeah, I, not by design necessarily. No, I know what point. you mean, but that's kind of what Andy was. Mm -hmm. Andy was kind of like, I'm, I'm absolutely not going to play by any rules, mm -hmm. and it's up to you to figure out what the hell I'm doing. It's, it's your point. What page in The Great Gatsby you decide to like that? Yeah, you know? yeah, like, well put, yeah. well put. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, which I, is more about art even than it is about comedy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Do you, uh, if. Again, I am one of these people you'd be talking to, but uh, if you're going to recommend this Robert Klein album to people who don't know him mm -hmm. and don't know anything about him, what's how can you condense why this is a good album to listen to? Oh, that's an interesting question. Right. Um, it's a good album to listen to because I think um, uh, because he is doing something very, very new within the traditional confines of the format mm -hmm. he's he's taken this conventional structure of comedy he's not he's not disavowing the he's not disavowing form mm -hmm. he's made it all about content and made it new um, uh, and I think that's really special I think you know because when you go and see people like Shecky Green mm -hmm. or like the real old school cats yeah. where you just go you know where at first your instinct is uh, you know you sort of poo poo it as something that, sure, that's, sure. that's old school or that's it's day has passed or whatever um, it, it's like Tom Jones I have this I've had this ongoing discussion with a friend of mine where I keep saying I'm telling you Tom Jones is unbelievable you've got to see Tom Jones right. live mm -hmm. right and it's like Tom Jones Come on, right. Tom Jones is like some Vegas hack schlock thing, whatever. You go and see him, and your jaw will drop I bet, yeah. because he is an unbelievable singer, 
performer, mm -hmm. musician, entertainer. You know, it's like Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. You could mock him all you wanted, but if you actually went and saw him live, you, you, your head would explode at how yeah. great he is, right? So you see people like, you know, like the Shecky Greens or the Jackie Masons or, you know, the real old school cats. Before you write them off, go and see what they're really all about because they're yeah. about a kind of show business that is mind blowing, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And um, their skill and craft and technique is incredible. And Klein is all those things, he's steeped in all those things, he manifests all those things, but he did it with a new voice, a voice of a new generation, uh, of a new perspective, and he embraced it, embraced yeah. the style and the form, which I think is beautiful, right. That's awesome. That's for you know. It actually it reminds me of, of, of a thing about stand up where uh, if you want to compare stand up working stand ups, no matter what they do, like for instance, you know Kumail Nanjiani, fucking great stand up, phenomenal. He's now doing you know great things on TV that aren't stand up. Uh, there's something that isn't appreciated about it, and that's the toil of it. In that. Uh, to be famous now, to be on TV, you don't have to have done theater. You don't have to have a dance degree. Like you, you know, fifty years ago, you needed this shit. In your right, back just just for credibility. Exactly. Yeah. But stand-ups, I feel like, are the only people keeping that alive, with the exception of the people who are still going out of their way to get theater degrees. You know, like stand-ups do. They're constantly at it. They're constantly working it. You you're know? right. You're and right. It's, it's something. There's, it, that's really interesting that you put that. There's actually stand-up is a lot like dance. Mm -hmm. In that, if you're a dancer, you are. There's not a single second of any day that you're not thinking about. Yeah. That you're a dancer. Mm -hmm. That you know the way you hold yourself, the way you move, mm -hmm. when you eat during the day, yeah. what you know, how much you eat during the day, mm -hmm. what what the rest of the week is like that you have to prepare for physically and psychologically, and and you never stop taking classes, you never stop dancing. You know, mm -hmm. stand-ups are like that. We are never not thinking about comedy. <laughs> right. You're yeah, right. That's good. It's a really good point. Well. Uh, oh, I was going to close it out until I just realized uh, plugs. What, what, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at your place. I'm going to be living here. Okay, good. Soon. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. okay? Or uh, this is room? fine. Okay. This is good. Um, I will be doing some uh, green room shows live at the Maui Comedy Festival awesome. over over uh, Halloween weekend. Mm -hmm. We will also be doing Setlist live. Oh, nice. Setlist, uh, the creation of the brilliant evil genius Troy Conrad, uh, will be appearing at Nerd Melt and UCB here in town. Uh, it's just coming back from the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, keep an eye out for that. It's great fun. Are you familiar with Setlist? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's great, great fun. Um, and uh, I'm working on a couple of documentaries, but uh, there's no way I could uh, possibly plug those okay, now. Understandable. Uh, and um, yeah, I'm just hanging out. I think I might go buy some yogurt. Sounds good. All right. Let's everybody. Let's all go join Paul Prevents and some yogurt. Well, thank you for doing this. this thank you for having awesome. me. I, like I said at the beginning, I love what you're doing here. I love, thank you. There's nothing I love more than than going back through this stuff. And yeah, it's well, you're, great. You're welcome back. I, you know, obviously talk about whatever the hell you want. I don't, I don't give a shit. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you must have on. Huh. I don't know if you, you edit this, I assume, right? Mm -hmm. So you can keep this in or not. Mm -hmm. But you must have Dan Pasternak on. Uh, yeah, I know. And I've actually, somebody the other day said they were going to email him for me. You must. Mm -hmm. Dan Pasternak is the guy who turns me on to shit. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, he turned me on to somebody called... Um, uh, <sighs> I'm confusing it with frame room. Um, oh, I'm going to have to get back to you on that All right, one. that's fine. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, but no, you got to have them on. Yeah, this is what everybody's telling me. Yeah. So, yeah. Then, I'd love to be here when you do. All right. Well, if, if, if we can make this happen. Then <laughs> I, wanna, I just want to be there rolling on the floor like the cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for doing this. And everybody, thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com. If he should happen to expire, I love that word, that's what hospital, I'm sorry he expired yesterday at 2 p.m. Is that pomposity? I'm sorry he expired yesterday. You don't know if it's a man or a library card. I'm sorry he expired. Please, we could have renewed the son of a... What's it tell? Can we still bring the candy? I want to die. I don't want to expire. At least if he expires, it ends on a nice exhale. A major chord, very final sounding. Take it Tail is out. It's perfect, you know. <laughs>